Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. This is Chad Morris. I am interviewing Alex Epstein, the regular host today, because he's going to talk about environmental education. And I think this is one of the most fascinating topics that Alex seems to be an expert in understanding some of the philosophical issues that underlie a lot of the messages that we hear. So I'm interested to interview him and get a lot of his thinking on things like recycling, peak oil, fracking and groundwater, global warming, renewable energy, all these topics that include common claims that we are endangering our environment in various ways and really harming our future. And it's an important topic. Uh, I know I hear lots of people acting self-righteous about things like recycling and global warming without a lot of seeming scientific details. And, And People are obsessed with this and we have a long track record of people making various claims that something's going to happen and then those claims not coming to pass in a given period of time from say the 70s until today. So I'm curious to hear Alex's take on all this. I know he has thought about it a lot. So Alex, what would you like to say? Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chad. Uh, thanks for guest hosting. Uh, for, those, for the uninitiated, uh, Chad helps us with business development at CIP and has also been discussing these issues with me uh, for many years. And, and part of the motivation uh, for, for being the guest on this show, besides you could argue vanity, is that we have a new project coming out um, and being up front, we're raising money for called the Industrial Encyclopedia. And you guys have heard of it before. I've mentioned it a bunch of times, but it is getting closer and closer uh, to reality. And one of the things that I think it accomplishes, and one of the reasons why I created it, was it gives a perspective on many of these environmental issues that I don't think you've ever heard before. I mean, you've heard elements of them on on Power Hour, um, but I think in using it, it'll give you a level of clarity and a set of principles that will enable you to analyze all these different issues. So one thing I want to emphasize, we're going to get into a, a, a variety of issues, maybe seemingly unrelated. And what I really want to, I'm going to emphasize is that if you understand a couple of basic principles, it goes a long way, uh, and particularly principles of technology. I'm going to emphasize that a lot. Principles of um, technology, which means man changing his environment, man uh, molding nature, uh, understanding those principles of technology, and on the other hand, understanding that there are certain people with an anti-technology philosophy and that that shapes a lot of today's environmental claims, I think that's going to be uh, super helpful. And then I'll talk a little bit more about how Industrial Encyclopedia is going to present all this information. So, Chad, what do you want to ask about first? Let's start right off the bat with something I think many people have experienced, which is hearing children, whether it's their own kids or their friends' kids, come up and start talking about issues such as recycling and global warming, issues that seem to be fairly complex if I were to think about them. And so what should our appropriate response be? Because there seems to me two issues. One is the technical truth or falsehood of these things, and the other is whether it's appropriate for, say, a a five or 
10 or maybe even 15-year-old to be trying to discuss the truth or falsehood of these issues. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there are, there are uh, a couple of elements. So to name the more educational uh, principle, it's the idea of, of that everything in education has a certain context, or, or some people would put it as hierarchy. There's a certain necessary order to learning. So you can't understand, um, you can't make a valid prediction about the future of the climate, say, if you don't know what carbon dioxide even is. And so that would describe basically every seven-year-old who's ever been urged to write a letter to the president or anyone else uh, decrying the threat of catastrophic uh, global warming. And that's, uh, that is, uh, I mean, in philosophy, we call that epistemology. That's a, a whole wrong view of, of how knowledge is acquired. And it's often it, people who have movements that try to present people knowledge at at too early a stage, they're they're very uh, propagandistic. I mean, that's a propagandistic technique. It's not a fair technique. It's certainly not something that should be in uh, schools that taxpayers are, are are paid, you know, paying for. I mean, they shouldn't be in any schools. Um, so that's that is a a real uh, problem. And and to give one element of industrial encyclopedia is that what part of what we're trying to do is counter the education that even we as adults never got. Because part of getting all this propaganda out of sequence is not just that we are exposed to all these falsehoods, but that we don't know what the truth is, that we don't know the basics. So I'll sometimes ask people, they'll talk about coal this, coal that, coal is evil. And my first question will be, well, do you know what coal is? And at most, usually they'll say, well, it's, it's black stuff. Now, I mean, it's if you don't even know what coal is, you don't know anything about it. it it's it, w there's no way you know all of the economic information, um, how much of that resource there is, why we use it against as against other things, and so part of the methodology with industrial encyclopedia is to ask uh, sequentially, you know, things like what is coal, how much of it is there, all the way through. How is it mined? How is it used to generate power uh, all the way through? How does it impact our economy? How does it impact our environment and health? So that you get a step-by-step -step education if you want it. You can, of course, just consume one thing at a time. But if you want it, you can really go from almost a child's level uh, to an adult level so that when you're thinking about these issues, you really have an almost visual picture uh of how it works, and that's that's what our educational system should teach, uh, but doesn't. So that's something I'm proud that we're we're creating. I certainly wish I had had it when I started Energy. I would have learned a lot more quickly. All right, let's then dive right in and see if you can demonstrate this on the issue of recycling. So this is a show about education. Let's uh, go ahead and educate me and educate our listeners. All right. So let's let's one thing about all of these issues is it's a really good question to ask what is, exactly does x mean because people most of the time are taught not to have definitions definitions are constraining they'll sometimes accuse you of playing semantics uh, and it's very important to be clear on okay what exactly are we talking about if we say a statement such as recycling is good well, what is recycling? And and it does it refer to something that you can say categorically yes or no is good? Because I, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, 
they're so tired of all this recycling propaganda. They'll say, oh, I hate recycling. I don't recycle. And uh, yes, you do. If you use plastic, you recycle because plastic is basically recycled material from oil. So oil, I mean, oil rather, re recycling is just a form of manufacturing. Manufacturing means you're converting some materials into either other materials or ultimately a finished product. And recycling just means you're creating a finished product out of the process or the finished product of some other thing. So it's so to be more uh, concrete about it, if you are, you can either get aluminum cans from the ground or you can get them by doing a whole elaborate process of collecting and processing and melting down and purifying other aluminum cans. There's nothing to say inherently that the that one is is better than the other or one is bad or one is good. It's a question of well, how many what kind of manufacturing resources do you need? And with something like aluminum one variable is well it takes a lot of energy um, to make, you know, new aluminum. So that's one of the cases where recycling might be more economic, whereas say with something like plastic or certainly paper, it takes a lot of energy to, to remanufacture that as against the standard process of cutting down uh, trees and whatnot. So, and we've had a, a brilliant guy named Pierre Desrochet on the show before, and he's, so you can go listen to that episode. Uh, I think it's episode 13, maybe, uh, something capitalism in our environment. So he, he breaks that down a lot, but the important thing is to just get clear on, okay, what is recycling? So recycling is just um, a, a form of manufacturing that involves reusing finished products. That's it. And then, and it's good basically when it's efficient and that's reflected in the price. And it's not a good idea uh, when it's not. So that's, that's kind of the simple view of recycling. Now, why is it then that there is such a fetish about this? Why are people so obsessed with recycling? They judge themselves morally, uh, whether they do it or not. Well, there's clearly something else going on besides the nature of the process, and that is a certain view of resources. So, you know, recycling is just you're using, you know, instead of using, say, resources that you get from the ground, you're using resources that you previously got from the ground. And for someone to think that, that that's somehow morally superior means that they have a view of resources, that, usually a couple different views. Um, one is that, that there's a certain given number of resources, so nature gives us a finite, uh, you know, quantity of resources, and we have to husband them uh, very carefully. And the other is that the use of resources by human beings is inherently environmentally damaging. So people will have these images of just garbage piling up and up and up and up. And both of these are really uh, ultimately based on a lack of understanding of, I think, one of the two key principles that you need to get, the, the two most valuable principles that you need to get. And I'll, I'll name the other one later. But the first is, and this is this is straight from Ayn Rand from her book, The Fountainhead, or Atlas Shard, or many of her other works. Reason is man's basic tool of survival. Reason is man's basic tool of survival. And this is an incredibly rich principle that has many, many applications. But one of the applications is that, re is that man's uh, mind, his reason, is the creator of resources. So that that bauxite or aluminum ore in the ground was not a resource until man figured out how to harness it. And aluminum 
is actually one of the most um, plentiful elements in the Earth's crust. Uh, but it was completely useless for a long time and is still relatively expensive because it takes a lot of a lot of ingenuity and a lot of energy uh, to get. So we, we've talked about resource theory on this show before, but the, so you can listen to other episodes, including the resources episode for more elaboration. But the key is, if you know that man's mind is his basic tool of survival, then when the issue of resources come up, you think, okay, how does that relate to the issue of resources? Okay, the mind is what makes things resources. The mind is what gives us usable stuff. And, and if we look at history, we see, yeah, people used to have a lot less stuff. Even though we've consumed a lot since then, we have way more than we did then. So that implies it can't be that nature is just giving us resources. It's that nature is just a whole bunch of matter, and it's our mind that transforms it uh, into resources. So once you have that view the virtue of using less, that's out the window. Uh, so that's that's one element of it. And then the other is just, is the environmental view. That's just, I don't know, that's that's partially just based on ignorance, but it's, it's a broader view that is, it also comes back to reason. Well, actually it comes back to the other, let me bring up the other principle. And once I have these two principles, the other answers won't be as long. The other uh, insight of Ayn Rand that I think is really relevant is that in social situations, the individual's life is the standard of value. You can just call this the idea of individualism. And this means that when we think about issues, we always have to reduce them to individual human lives. That's what matters. It, it, you know, If you believe that a snail or a polar bear takes precedence over a human being, then you, you should acknowledge that. But that is morally false. Uh, for, for many reasons, but you know, we can argue that a different show, but that's certainly our starting point at CIP, that the individual lives are what matter. And if you recognize that and take it seriously, then it shouldn't bother you at all that to use a plastic bottle and to throw it out. Because what's happening there is, in my view, that's an environmental improvement because we took some oil, that's where plastic comes from, from under the ground. We manufacture it into a plastic bottle. Let's say I'm giving a speech or something. It's very convenient to have that plastic bottle with me. I can be sure no one spiked my drink or whatever. It's, a, it's pretty good at keeping things cold. Uh, that's fantastic. And then I throw it away. And what's happened? Well, there was a formerly unusable thing under the ground. And now... I made use of it, I got a value. An individual's life benefited instead of not being benefited. And then at the end of it, the worst case scenario is that we put it in a safe place. And from a human perspective, the world has gotten better, not worse. But if you view if you view nature as more significant than human beings, which is really where the anti-technology perspective comes from, then you think, no, you had no right to, to change the earth in that way, to put that bottle there. And okay, fine, you might have to do some of that in life, but you should minimize it uh, as much as possible. Uh, and in my view, I, I believe in what's called guilt-free garbage. No, you should use whatever. I mean, you're not consuming as an end in itself, but you consume to benefit. And if it's the most efficient to put that in a landfill, great. There's plenty of room in the earth. The room that it came out of is the same room you can you can put it back into. There's no actual health hazard. So the only way, to say the least, I mean, garbage is amazing for health because you're segregating your waste away. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the by understanding certain correct philosophical principles, you will have the right 
orientation toward these issues and that the wrong orientation is coming from, in this case, an anti-reason, uh, an anti-human life idea that that undervalues the power of human reason and that doesn't acknowledge that individuals have a right to do the most necessary to preserve their lives. Okay, let me jump in here, Alex. And you're talking about people not valuing human life, but it seems a lot of times I hear people talk about recycling as something that if we don't do it, we're going to harm our children, our grandchildren, even ourselves because of the manner in which the waste is going to come back to haunt us. So how, in your view, does that uh, not consider the value of human life? I mean, it certainly sounds like they're treating human life as something important. Okay, well, let's, yeah, we have to distinguish between the duped and the dupers, uh, if that's a word, I'm not sure, but the, the people who are doing the duping. So uh, what I'm saying, not concerned with human life, I'm primarily, although I'm going to qualify that, primarily talking about the intellectuals who are pretending that somehow a plastic bottle that they, by their own admission will last, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, that that's somehow going to create some sort of horrible thing. And, and forget a plastic bottle, just drinking water. Let's take something more serious. Hospitals today are, are incredibly dominated by plastic. So let's take, you know, plastic bags for waste disposals. Well, plastic bags are on the verge of being banned or already banned in many places for things like groceries and uh, what have you. Well, plastic is, is essential uh, for human health. So we know for a fact that plastic is incredibly beneficial and there's no evidence whatsoever uh, and it makes no sense that it would be harmful if you put it in an isolated place. Part of its characteristic is it's very what's called non-reactive. I mean, the reason we use it is because it doesn't change that. Like you can put a bunch of rotten meat in it or, you know, blood and it won't be permeated by that. So how is something like that going? It doesn't really break down very much. So how is something like that going to be uh, dangerous? So, so that I think... So in the part of the people promoting that idea, that that's pseudoscience, and I think they really have a view that man's relationship with nature, particularly the past 300 years, is just out of whack. Uh, and, well, I'll go into it now. There's a certain view that they have, which is part of the anti-technology philosophy, which you can call the, um, I, I like to call colloquially, the mother nature view of nature. And that's really that nature is our mother. Nature, uh, sort of untouched or untrammeled by human beings, is the basic cause of our well-being. And an aspect of that is that Mother Nature exists in what they'll call a delicate balance, or more technically, an equilibrium. And so there's this delicate balance in nature, and we really need to make sure that we don't upset that balance. And so whenever people historically with this view have seen new activity, certainly the, the technological revolution and the industrial uh, revolution, which are just basically the same thing, uh, they thought, oh my gosh, we're, we're changing things so much. How could, you know, what is this doing to mother nature? But if you, if you have the view of nature that is just objective, okay, nature is, nature gives us the conditions for life, but it doesn't guarantee us life. We need to alter it dramatically to optimize it for life, which is why, you know, only in the past, uh, you know, only now do we have a life expectancy of 80. And, and you know, we used to have over 50% infant mortality. If you, if you have the right view, it's, it's just completely, uh, the whole, that view is, is just completely 
inconceivable. Now, okay, so I lost. Okay, so the mother. That's kind of folding points in here. So there's the mother nature view of nature versus just the, uh, I think the objective view of nature. And and one other aspect of the objective view is recognizing which people used to recognize as self-evident until sort of modern uh, ecology, that nature is a competitive system. So you have uh, much of nature is competing against us. And part of promoting our survival is out competing these diseases and other animals and various toxic plants that did not evolve by being all being our friends, but that in some cases are, uh, you know, are evolved to be enemies. So there's this whole just completely Disney view of how nature interacts in this equilibrium and we're disrupting it. It's all wrong and it has a very religious character. Mother Nature really uh, becomes a god. So that that's getting into what the intellectuals are after. Now, I, I said... You mentioned the issue of concern for human life and that the average person bringing up recycling has it. And I would say, yes, fundamentally, yes, they are, but that this kind of philosophy has taught them to not be that way. That is, why are they focused? If you're focused on recycling all the time and that's your obsession or whatever your, your pet environmentalist project happens to be, that means you're not focused on maybe your own life, maybe your own family enough, but certainly, I mean, where's, where a friend of mine asked someone who's obsessed with recycling, like, what about cancer? How come I never hear you about, talk about cancer? You're always talking about where you put your trash that seems out of proportion. And as a society and as a world, really, as a globe, we see all these ridiculous, uh, this, these ridiculous priorities. For instance, no one seems to care that 1.5 billion people don't have electricity, uh, you know, for heating and air conditioning. And yet they're obsessed with the idea that their climate might go up one or two degrees uh, on average. Their people claim to care about malaria, but they are anti-DDT, which is history's greatest weapon against malaria that the green movement uh, got banned in many places. So it's, it's not to say, to say someone doesn't fully care about human life means that they, because of the philosophical ideas um, and priorities they've accepted, they are not in action being properly concerned with human life in many ways. And that's that's part of what we're trying to remedy at Center for Industrial Progress. It's giving people the right philosophy, which means giving people the right priorities on if you care about human life, including the human environment, here's where your focus needs to be. It needs to be on things like energy production, not on things like what bin does your plastic bottle go into. So it sounds like you're saying a big issue here is the one of opportunity costs. I've heard it said that Warren Buffett uh, claimed the most important criteria in making an investment is not how well is the stock going to perform, but what's the opportunity cost versus where else you might put your money. And it seems like when we're putting our efforts and our attention towards advocating a particular cause, it would behoove us to look into what are all of the options we have uh, for things to promote if our goal is better human life and really which ones have the highest value. Um, and, and you're suggesting that recycling may not be a tremendously high value uh, in, in many cases versus things like expanding energy around the world. Yeah, I think that's that's way too charitable toward the recycling movement and toward the environmentalist movement in general. It's certainly true that, I mean, in any context, you have to have, you have to be aware of what are the different 
alternatives and what are the costs and benefits of each. And assuming there was a problem pertaining to recycling, which there is not, I mean, the the problem is solved by having proper laws preventing you from throwing trash on other people's property. And uh, it's in businesses' self-interest to recycle as much as they possibly can. And in fact, efficient recycling happens a ton on the business level. It's just not usually efficient for um, for consumers to sort out all their trash because you're just dealing with such small volumes. And usually the best thing is just to burn it, which incidentally is what happens to a lot of your precious recycling that goes that you put in the bins. It can get sold to China and they just burn it for energy and I think laugh at us. Uh, I don't mean that to be mean, but that's they're even even despite what you think, uh, they're not necessarily making it into super expensive uh, bottles. But it's it's not just well electricity is important, and then they're focusing on less important values. They're often because usually what they're focused on is something with political action. Uh, so, for example, focusing on making me use light bulbs I do not want to use. That's that's negative for me. It's it's not the opportunity cost idea is more like well you could be getting something better. No, this is they're making my life worse. And if you if you the more severe the issue, the more the bigger the cause, such as the whole catastrophic global warming uh, issue, that they're saying, well, we should ban eighty percent of the of the fossil fuels that we use. You know, the cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, which means not just for us, but for the people who don't even have it yet. And that's, I mean, that is a complete uh, catastrophe. So that would be, you know, the equivalent of of Buffett choosing between you know, uh, Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, funding the mafia. So it's, it's, uh, no, it's, it's much, much worse. It's not, it's not just a misprioritization. It's the issue of a positive orientation. So a bad philosophy doesn't just make you less well off. I mean, it, although that's true, it makes, it's positively harmful to you because it, it gives you the wrong, it puts you in the wrong direction and it gives you the wrong, it gives you guidance consistent with that wrong direction. All right. Well, this is fascinating stuff, Alex. I, I'm sure we could talk endlessly about each of these topics. So with all of this information, could you quickly, before we move on to the next topic, condense and summarize in terms of the, the topic of environmental education here? If people want to be educated about recycling, what are the main points that they need to go after or understand? Or how, how would you put that? Well, just getting clear that uh, recycling is a manufacturing process uh, that, and that the way to judge whether it's good or not is how many economic resources it uses. And that's so, you know, time, energy, materials, et cetera. And the way that that's done in the market is simple. It's by price. So recycling is good. I mean, I, I recycle, I, I say this, but people think it's a joke. It's not. I recycle when I'm paid for it and I don't uh, when I'm not. So if, if it's cheaper to throw something away, that means that there's no profit to be made by your individual plastic bottle, given all the costs associated with turning it into uh, another one or a part of another one. Uh, so that, I mean, that's just the core of recycling. And then, but, but beneath that is, is really understanding the issue of, of, resources are not resources of the product of the mind so they're not they're not fixed and that individuals have a right to change the planet all right
So let's move on now. And I think most of us that have heard many claims out there that we are running out of a lot of the resources and that it's going to result in this imminent catastrophe. And a prime one is that we're running out of oil. Uh, I, I think the term for this is called peak oil. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, on the topic of peak oil. Yeah, and again, I think all of these topics that we're discussing today uh, are, are things we've covered in one form or another on the show. So what I'm trying to stress today is is some of the underlying principles of of uh, of positively how to understand the issues, and then also the, the the false principles underlying it. So as soon as you hear we're running out of resources, that's the same idea underlying recycling of uh, we have a that Mother Nature gives us a fixed. Uh, number of resources and so that's that's not true and so we just apply applying that to oil it's viewing oil as just oil is a product of the mind now of course it's I mean there are physical it, it's a physical thing in the ground as well but it wouldn't be of value unless we a knew how to make it valuable in its native state it's virtually useless and b if we knew how to find and, and discover it and then in some cases oil we or oil products, we can manufacture from other things. So we can turn natural gas into various oil products. We can turn coal into various oil products. So it's not as if there's some nature gives us some uh, fixed amount of oil. So that's that's part of the human ingenuity. Uh, man is man's reason is man's basic means of survival. That's the resources point again. But then another application of that point that's crucial, and this is this is. Uh, an economics principle, but it still falls under that philosophical principle, is just the of how we choose among competing resources, because there are many different ways of getting power. And how do we choose? Well, we choose using the mind. That is, we decide at any given point in time, what is the best, cheapest way of doing X? And the reason we use oil is because right now it's the best, cheapest way of doing X as reflected by, uh, you know, by its price and by all the uses that we can make of it. But when, if we understand the nature of the mind in the current state of affairs, it's not, it's not that we are buying, I go to my gas station today and I buy gasoline and I'm somehow saying, well, I plan on me or the rest of humanity doing this for the next million years. And because I can't imagine that or because there might not be enough oil in the ground for that to happen, it's somehow, quote, unsustainable. That's not a pro-reason view, and it completely misunderstands resources. Uh, so th the issue is, what is the best thing right now at, with the understanding that the mind will continually, if it's left free, find better and better ways of doing things? And so that that's why you keep seeing all these peak oil predictions go wrong, because they don't, uh, they don't understand the nature of the mind in creating resources. But also the ethical point or the ethical political point of individualism is relevant here. Because let's say, let's say you had some proof that, well, oil is chemically so amazing, and for the next thousand years, let's let's say, you know, in the the idea of running out is not a coherent idea because you just have prices go up and you don't run out. But but it could be that oil became uneconomic or it became effectively unusable. Uh, by a lot of things. And thus, we would have to have a permanently more expensive form of energy. Let's just stipulate that. Now, I don't think that's true, but you couldn't, you can't sort of prove um, uh, 
what's the what's the term? Uh, you can't prove a priori that could never happen. Certainly, if the government gets involved, that that could happen. But the issue is, if we knew that the future couldn't have as cheap liquid fuel as we do, should that cause us not to use the best liquid fuel? And I say, if you care about individual human lives, the answer to that is absolutely no. That should not guide our decision. Every every group of human beings at any given time is responsible for itself, and that, that includes its children and the, the people in, in a relevant time span. But a people 500 years ago shouldn't have been thinking of us, and we shouldn't be thinking of people uh, 500 years from now, and, and, and unless it would involve, I mean, if it was really some scorched earth type thing, it would be things that we would harm us. But there's this self-sacrificial element, and you really have to make it concrete of saying, well, Okay, that means someone is going to be. If you're, if you believe in rationing the oil for the future, how long are you going to do that? Let's say you think it's going to quote run out in twenty years. So should we ration it out over the next hundred, over the next thousand? And then how many ambulance rides is that going to cost? How many honeymoons is that going to prevent? How many bulletproof vests are not going to be made? Or how many of them are going to be too expensive for people uh, to afford? So there's this premise that individuals' lives really don't belong to them, that they belong to nature. And that's that's another perspective on, that's why they go from we're running out of oil to we should not use oil. One does not follow from the other unless you believe in sacrificing individuals. If you believe that individuals now have a right to pursue their lives to the fullest, then you wouldn't see one as following from another. So it's, it's both the wrong view of reason and again, the wrong view of, of individual human lives. And I think of the way a lot of people hold the ideas like scarcity of resources and peak oil is sort of like how we have a, a bank account um, that we've maybe saved up a certain amount of money. We maybe have a certain rate of savings going forward based on our jobs and our prospects. And we know that if we spend faster than our savings are coming in, if we use up today because we're enjoying ourselves all of our reserves, and that's going to be bad for us in the future. And I, I think what you're saying is that type of thinking that we may apply to our own lives and our own bank accounts in today versus tomorrow does not apply to a 200, 500-year time span and doesn't apply to the mining and use of natural resources from the earth. But do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's more of a, I mean, that's, there are all kinds of analogies that people make with these issues and there's, I mean, I wish we had time to go into all of them, but it, it's, I always have to be careful. I mean, every analogy has its limits. There are always, always a disanalogy involved and I don't have a statistic, but most that I hear are really, really bad and, and don't help clarify things. So, I mean, what is a bank account? I mean, if I, if I think of my my bank account, I mean, I mean, actually, individuals taking care of their bank accounts is exactly what prevents you from, quote, running out of oil. Because it's individuals, including the individuals in the oil industry and the other competing energy industries, looking forward and saying, what do I need to do to have money to be secure? And that means you need to produce something. And that means you need to figure out the best way. And that means you're going to be looking for better and better forms of energy uh, on one side. And then ample savings to pay for that energy uh, on the other side. So the way in which what what and this is another aspect of reason as man's basic means of survival, that reason is an attribute of the individual and that in societal situations, we don't jump from an individual makes decisions this way. Therefore, someone should make a decision for all individuals this way. 
No, it's not that at all. It's we jump from one individual to 300 million individuals, but we remember that they're all individuals and we realize that the economic processes happening. So the the amazing fact that whenever I go to my gas station, I can get gasoline or the fact that oil companies are incentivized to drill when the price goes up. We recognize that these are all just individuals. So all the planning is in the minds of individuals. It's just, it's hard to wrap one's mind around because the reason that exists in a system of 300 million exists in 300 million minds and then the actions of 300 million uh, people. But it, 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 it's always, and it's, it's part of wrecking, it's part of the basis of individualism as well, that, that each individual's reason is his own. And he's responsible for, if he's an energy producer, producing the energy of the future. And as a consumer, having the money uh, to consume the energy of the future. And, it, and it's that process that over time, leaving aside government intervention, particularly in the financial system, leads to individuals being wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. But from the outside, the person will say, well, how did that happen? Because someone like me didn't tell everyone what to do with some plan. And the idea is, no, you you know, if you can plan your own life, you're lucky, but you can't plan, uh, you know, five lives, let alone 300 million. Uh, and it's, it's the, uh, it's the combined intelligence of those that leads to an amazing future. Not someone thinking in this very detached from reality way about, Hmm, how are, how it's always, they're acting this way. And if they continued to act this way, something would go wrong. So I better force them to act a different way. But of course, we change the way we act every day in response to to changing facts, uh, and we we do that rationally for the most part, as against someone else who would do it out of uh, complete ignorance and and with no right to, incidentally. All right, so this is a lot of great information again, and uh, you can tell me if this doesn't work. But I'm curious if you're able to leave us with a bite size chunk again to condense a lot of what you just said. So when we hear the topic of peak oil in the future, something to help stimulate our thinking in a direction that you believe is going to be most helpful and rational. Yeah, oil is uh, oil is just a, another resource that the human mind creates. And we use it because it's the best, cheapest one at the moment. And we'll stop as soon as that ceases to become the case. All right. And, and by the way, even if we can't find something, even if the future can't, couldn't find something better, we still have a right to use it. So now I want to move on and get your thoughts on maybe currently one of the most hot topics out there, which is the topic of fracking and the uh, scare, the fear of groundwater uh, being contaminated. So I mentioned the issue of an anti-technology philosophy, and it goes by the term environmentalism. That is a very misleading term because it is to be in favor of a, of a healthy environment for humans, you need to be very pro-technology, pro-modifying our environment, and that is anti. So it's really an anti-technology movement. And there are many um, aspects to it. So we've mentioned its view of resources as fixed its view of nature as this as this mother with a delicate balance, its view ethically that human beings don't have a right, a uh, full right to the pursuit of happiness, that we have to abstain or sacrifice for the sake of nature or our mother nature, um, and and that it doesn't really, it doesn't respect that the mind is the key to 
all of the good in human life. And this is one aspect of that is is the view of risk, how we're taught to think of risk. And the, the view is, is in modern terms called the the precautionary principle, but there are a lot of historical variations. And and basically what it is, is it views as risky doing anything new. So when someone hears fracking, they think, oh, this is a fundamentally new technology because they just heard of it. Now, incidentally, it isn't, but let's pretend that it is. Uh, I mean, it, the, there are variations of it that have made it super productive, but it's been around for a long time. But when they hear about fracking or nuclear power or something, we're taught to be afraid of what could go wrong if we don't do this. And that's the risk. So the risk means the risk is thought of as what can go wrong when you do something new. And what that omits completely is that life consists of the mind figuring out new things all the time. So just to reference back what we were just talking about with peak oil or with the nature of oil, you're constantly trying to create new resources. And if you're talking about hydraulic fracturing or fracking, this is the greatest energy development of the last 30 years. This has the potential to, I mean, it's already making our energy way cheaper. And that means cheaper agriculture, more people can have food, more people can have medicine. I mean, this is literally life and death for, for millions, if not billions of people. The anti-technology view of risk doesn't view it as a risk to not do that. It just views it as a risk to frack. But if you look at the, the you in your calculation, leaving aside the, the concrete facts of fracking and groundwater, which I'll get to in a second, you need to have a view of risk that is based on the fact that that new things are always needed, that's a view of reason, and that individual uh, lives matter. And so you want to be calculating it in terms of what risk profile is going to be, you know, what set of risks are going to benefit human life because there are always risks. And in this case, it's such an overwhelming value and no one even pays attention to the positive value. At most, they'll pay attention to it in the form of, well, a bunch of people could be getting jobs doing this potentially toxic thing as it's... Uh, portray and we have to balance that but no natural gas which is the the primary um, product of, of fracking uh, oil would be second that is the basis of uh, one of the two bases of modern agriculture that means when you, the more you frack the more food people have which is really important especially when you have a, a population in the world of seven billion so this is another instance of even though people mean well philosophically they've been taught to not really care about human life because to not care about fracking positively is to not care about whether accidentally or not all of the people that you know whose lives are going to be worse if you don't do it so if you know anything about the positives of fracking and you see someone just treating it as a negative, that means they have this very anti-technology view of risk where they, and that predisposes them to ignore all the benefits or dismiss them and just look, look for all the risks. Now, that's what you can know philosophically. If you look at it concretely, it's, it's really, uh, it's just embarrassing that this claim has any currency because we've talked about this on the show before, but fracking basically things that contaminate groundwater are things that big surprise occur near groundwater so things like a shallow oil well or any any kind of well drilled into the ground there's a chance that it can disrupt things and cause a certain kind of contamination a water well can by the way uh, and fracking occurs you know 5,000 plus feet below 
the groundwater, which is why there's some incredible number of cases that the EPA has studied and none of them have had contamination from uh, from hydraulic fracturing. And that's, that's usually what the pro-fracking people stress, but I, I think it's more important to stress that this is an overwhelming positive and that a pro-technology view of risk would seek to minimize any negative, but keep your eye on the ball of this is amazing. This is so positive. We absolutely need to leave people free to do it. And the monsters in France and other places who are banning this should be identified that way. Now, I think, you know, I hear you saying all the positives of fracking, but I don't really hear that coming through in the various articles and kind of public comments that are out there about fracking. I think what people tend to hear is this view that, you know, there's this technology that's cool it's it's getting it's making people some money um, but there isn't the presentation like you just gave of all of these benefits so how is an average person to consider the benefits if they're not hearing that that's even part of the story well I can, hopefully i mean they're listening to this show if they heard that comment so that that helps and and this is another chance to plug uh, the industrial encyclopedia which certainly is covering uh, fracking but but more broadly, I mean, really not understanding fracking and the value of it is not understanding the value of energy, of being able to create um, cheap, plentiful, reliable energy and realizing that that is what that is the thing that stands between us and a life expectancy of 30. That is that is the fundamental, uh, you know, technology in a modern society. And there's there's much more to say about it, but it's it's. The whole perspective of Industrial Encyclopedia is we're explaining how the world around you works, the industrial civilization we live in, from a pro-technology and, and a true philosophy. So philosophy that truly values how industry and technology improve human life. And when you have that philosophy kind of seared in your mind and then connected to all uh, and then have all the concrete issues explained in a clear way, but always connected to the basic principles and the basic orienting philosophy, it's very powerful. So the next time you hear about, oh, this chemical or something like that is harmful, your mind is instantly going to go to, okay, well, uh, and I, I think we might talk about chemicals later, but uh, okay, what, like, oh, DDT hurts bird eggshells, whether that's true or not. Your mind goes to, okay, but why do we use DDT? What's the positive? And a pro-technology philosophy is what gives that. And unfortunately, there is no resource in the world that that gives a... I mean, there's no resource that really covers all of what Industrial Encyclopedia covers, but, but certainly none that covers it from a consistently uh, pro-technology philosophy. And it's understandable because most of the people in the field of energy or, or industrial civilization, you know, they're either historians or they're, they're economists and... Uh, scientists, and these are very important professions, but those professions are not going to be as disposed to understanding all of these anti-technology ideas that I think most people end up picking up. And, uh, you know, I think in part because my background is in philosophy and I came to energy from philosophy, it's helped a lot with, A, uncovering the false philosophical anti-technology assumptions of the other side, and then B, being able to articulate positively uh, the, the, the positive principles and then apply those to all the issues. 
All right. Since you just brought up chemicals, I think that's a fascinating topic that I wanted to get into. And I just want to ask you if I have you correct on fracking first, where um, I think you're saying if we understand the value of energy, you know, what I think of as power being the ability to move things around, whether it's trucks, cars, or electrons on a computer screen, the more ability we have to move those things around, the better we can make our environment, the more lives we can save, and that any time we see a rise in some new technology that's producing lots of power or people are making lots of money out of that, we should just assume that unless there's something really bad, that's going to be a huge positive that we've got more power, more energy. Is that right? Yeah, that's great. I saw yesterday something about, you often see these celebrities criticizing fracking and they'll often say, these people are just out for money, uh, which is funny because celebrities make a lot of money in a certain sense. But it's, it's also, if you hear someone's making a lot of money, all things being equal, they're doing something good. Either that or the government is taking someone else's money and giving it to them. But government is certainly not taking my money and forcing me to pay for cheap natural gas. All right. So with that, let's dive into the, the topic of chemicals that you just brought up. And certainly... Uh, a topic we hear a lot about I mean, in nutrition, like don't eat things with chemicals in it. Uh, I hear about all the chemicals in, in clothing, you know, if we buy some natural fibers versus something that might have these chemicals that are going to hurt me. I mean, it's scary to hear, actually, that if, uh, if you've got a certain perspective. What are your thoughts on this? How, how do we get properly educated on, how, on the role of chemicals in our environment? Well, it's similar to the recycling issue in that you want to get clear, you want to ask what the person is attacking or talking about, and then you really just want to apply a proper understanding of reason. So let's be clear on the outset, everything is chemicals. Everything is a chemical. We learn the periodic table and that exhausts you know, all the different things. So everything is a chemical. So when someone talks about chemicals, what do they mean? They mean man-made chemicals. Another way of putting that is mind-made chemicals, chemicals that are synthesized using the guidance of the human mind. And if you have a, a positive understanding of reason, your expectation will be, well, man synthesized these chemicals be, for some good purpose because he, he needed some functionality that he couldn't get by just taking a compost heap or you know taking a tree uh, so if we take something like the uh, petrochemicals, oil-based chemicals in a hospital, uh, much of what you do in a hospital, you can't do with anything but oil-based chemicals uh, because those have a level of, I mentioned it before, interactivity where they're just, they're so, they keep you so, they, they are so good at dividing things up and, and keeping one, you know, things hermetic, there's the expression hermetically sealed. And that's so important in any kind of environment. We actually have, uh, if you go to industrialprogress.net, we've got a great article that just came out by Andrew Brannon on, um, it's focused on energy, but it's all about uh, modern uh, modern hospitals. So it's, and then if you look at all around the world, if you ask yourself, okay, what of this kind of existed and was available in nature? And then what if it was synthesized by man? Well, just about everything you're going to see is synthesized by man and probably half of that at least is made uh, of oil. And then that raises the question, okay, there's all of these amazing things done through synthetic chemicals. So why are we, why is that a term of derision? And it, it can only go back to this whole anti-technology philosophy, which is wrong for man to 
to throw off the balance of Mother Nature, to go against Mother Nature, to selfishly exploit uh, Mother Nature, because clearly there are all these these benefits. And if you want to take the the other element that I said positively of always look in terms of individual lives, when you're assessing a given chemical in a given context, and every chemical, you're it's always a context, and incidentally, it's always an amount because dosage is. Um, such a huge thing because things can be toxic. You know, if you eat enough potatoes, you'll die. Um, and not just from like long-term impacts that some people might talk, that people might talk about. I mean, like, you know, die quickly. Uh, yeah. You know, I've heard people talk about the amount of, of uh, you know, poisonous chemicals that might be in an immunization shot being equivalent to part of an apple or something like this. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, nature I, and, and, as I mentioned before, well, let me just give the 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 principle I was going to mention. So there's a principle of reason and the principle of individualism. So you want to look at things in terms of okay, how does this usage of chemicals, whether nature made or man made, how does that affect human life? That's it. It's not was it made by nature, was it made by man? Because both can be toxic. Although nature made have more of a tendency to be toxic because they're not engineered specifically with the purpose of benefiting human life. So you might. You know, now you'll find things like maybe and there's, you know, let's say you get, um, uh, I don't know, some fungus or something like that. You know, there are fungicides in nature and then there are man-made ones. And what, you know, what you would use would just depend on what actually works. And you, you would take advantage of the fact that for various reasons, different things in nature want to kill other things, namely fungus. But it might be that a synthetic one uh, is better. And if you just are by the standard of human life, you you have a huge appreciation for for the man-made in general, and then in any particular instance, you'll just judge it uh, objectively. Now, you said, what was the last thing you said? Because I felt like there was one more outstanding point. Um, are, are you asking with respect to the chemicals topic, or are you asking oh, about Oh, yeah, the, the natural. I, I remember now. You're talking about the um, the amounts of these things. Yeah, we're going to, in in one of the things we're going to have in the encyclopedia, I'm not sure when, or, but we're going to have an article, I think, before that um, by one of our people who's a chemist and just laughs whenever I bring up these things because she can just run off 50 things off the top of her head that are just toxic, uh, you know, in nature if, if consumed in the right thing. So it's, it's a completely anti-reason uh, bias to be against or disinclined toward uh, the man-made. And isn't oftentimes the man-made and the chemical just an isolation of something that we're already consuming in various forms in nature? Well, sure, and, and it's ultimately just a rearrangement of elements. So if you take sure. something like a petroleum product, I mean, you've got a bunch of, uh, it's a hydrocarbon, so it's essentially just a bunch of carbon and hydrogen atoms. You've got a whole barrel of oil, and that's got a bunch of different arrangements of carbon and hydrogen atoms. And then what what the whole plastics industry does is it takes some of the lighter molecules and it does some cool things to them some cool chemistry to them which used to be considered cool as unfortunately no longer but hopefully soon again and it allows it it creates these really cool chains of molecules that don't exist in that form in nature but that have all these amazing uh, properties now there are different uh they're you know they're different it's called polymers i mean there are polymers that exist in nature like i think cellulose um but the point is we can create we're we're just we're just rearranging 
there's no, there's, this, it's not unnatural. Like in a certain sense, nothing is unnatural because we're human beings. We have a nature and our, our nature is to be really, really good at manipulating the rest of nature in our favor. And every animal is trying to do that. We're just fantastic at it and we should keep being fantastic at it because we really don't want the life expectancy and survival rates of other animals. So a lot of times when I hear people talk about chemicals as in a pejorative way, it you know they're alluding to the fact that this is somehow more dangerous than something natural. But you have me thinking, aren't we able to test the degree of safety of something, whether it be man-made or natural? And if we are, shouldn't we be asking what's the safety and what's the, the risk-reward, not is this man-made or not? Shouldn't that be the criteria? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's using the proper uh, individual life-based uh, standard. And, and it goes back to the issue of risk in part where there, when something is man-made or new, I mean, a new man-made thing, they'll only look at the negative. So they'll do some crazy study in which they give you 10,000 times, they'll give some lab rat 10,000 times the dose of X element of plastic that a human being could ever be exposed to. And then they'll say, oh, this is a carcinogen. Or this is a toxin. And leaving aside the fact that nature has, like you would have to have much lower concentrations of natural things like arsenic to get into big trouble. And you believe we're able to do that fairly well to actually test and determine the toxicity? Well, if you weren't, then that would be another just rational thing to consider. Like, let's say that, I mean, I think to my knowledge, uh, we are, I mean, for those who don't know, Chad knows a lot more about, I mean, Chad has a lot of background in nutrition and I, I don't have nearly that, but let's say, let's say there was some new material that someone th- synthesized in a lab. This certainly happens with pharmaceuticals, which is why you do trials that you just don't know. I mean, you can see, oh, it has this positive effect, but it might have a bunch of negative effects. Reason, reason both gives you means of testing it and it also gives you means of avoiding it if it's too risky. So if someone has a thing that says, comes up with something in a lab and says, well, this might extend your life one year. Or there's, it might extend your life one year, but I have no idea what it'll do to your liver. Or your, obviously, I'm not going to take it. So that, that's another part of, of, of rationality. And, but, but the rationality of an individual, what they don't like about it is that it takes into account very seriously the benefits of the man-made. Whereas in their determinations where they want to ban things for being new, they don't think of the benefits at all. They just make up all of these things. Well, if this, you know, this could be toxic and somehow that would spread. And I mean, it's all these Hollywood uh, disaster things that are made up. But the real disaster is a lack of man-made chemicals. I mean, if you take just the chemical DDT, I mean, DDT is, it's hard to think of any single product that has saved more. I mean, it's definitely saved at least a billion lives. So, and that is something that's been demonized. That's really, it's a billion people who didn't die. I mean, think about what just, I mean, just think of, you know, one, you know, one family eating dinner because they had DDT and then multiply that times many, many millions. All right. Again, we could talk about these topics endlessly and I know we're limited on time. So let's go from the really small chemicals to the really large effects of global warming. How do we think about the topic of global warming properly if we want to have a good environment, if we want to be rational, if we want to do the best we can for human life? Yeah, again, if I sound like a broken record, good. 
because you got to use the same basic methodology and the same principles along with all you know kinds of different specifics to each case but you have to use them all the same so first thing what is global warming uh listen to by the way if if, if you haven't or you can re-listen to it uh we have a, we had a one and a half hour power hour couple episodes ago where uh, Eric Dennis and I talked about how to detect pseudoscience and we went a lot into that issue broadly and then the issue of global warming and obviously I'm not going to go into it in that much depth here but first thing with global warming is what are they talking about what does that even mean the global warming is it you know the earth is warming that it's caused by human beings da, 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 da. and ultimately the only class it, we need to have clear classifications and those classifications should be based on uh, human life. And just to pause for a second, this is something that I think the industrial encyclopedia is unique at. And it comes up all the time on the show where some guest or, or maybe not a guest, but something in the culture will come up where they'll use a term and I'll, I'll insist, no, that's not the right way to think about it. And when I say that, it's always that I want, we always need to be clear. We need to, when you're using concept, you're grouping things together and you're saying these have similarities that I can therefore make generalizations about them on the basis of. So you need to be really clear what you're grouping together. Otherwise, your generalizations uh, are no good. So if you want to talk about like some phenomenon, uh, you all, they always need to be grouped together based on some common relationship to human life. So here with global warming, the real concern would be... Uh, catastrophic global warming and then even there it could be catastrophic man-made catastrophic preventable catastrophic unpreventable you could you can subdivide it and that can be valuable um but but you need to at least segregate that and the fact that they don't and that people i mean just the other day i was asked by a relative like do you believe global warming is real and as soon as someone asked me that question i know a that they've been uh indoctrinated by environmentalists and that B, they are on that side of it because no one on the other, I mean, or, or if you don't think global warming is catastrophic, you definitely shouldn't go asking people, do you believe in global warming? It's just too, it's, it's, it's a very deliberately vague way of putting the issue that's trying to, trying to get, it's trying to, it's trying to rope a lot of people into it based on the fact that in general, the average temperature has risen a degree in the last century. It's trying to go from that to it's a catastrophe, whereas the evidence is not that at all. And this goes back to reason that in the last century, or the last couple centuries, using fossil fuels, the human environment has gotten way better. And anyone who denies this is is saying that an environment in which we have a life expectancy of 80 is inferior to one in which we have a life expectancy of 30. And that means they don't have a human centric view of environment. And if you understand the mechanics of how that worked, part of that is that a lot of what we do with energy as we learn is we take the elements of our environment, including weather, and we we make them more in our favor. So it's not that we can control the weather yet, but we can make our homes weather resistant. We can build sturdy homes. We can have heating, air conditioning. Living in Southern California, especially the last couple of weeks, I mean, and, and living here every summer, that is really important to have air conditioning. I could not get any work done. Uh, otherwise, and of course, it's much worse than that. I mean, people, particularly younger and older people, would die uh, of heat. So understanding, the, there's lots more to say, but understanding the role of reason in life, your view of of someone saying, okay, it's warmed a degree, 
I think I'm predicting a catastrophe. You should get rid of all the fuels that brought you here. That shouldn't add up at all. That should at the very you should really make sure that the person has an appreciation for all the benefits of fossil fuels. And then if they say, well, it's just this tragedy that the fuels that brought us here are the fuels are ones we need to abandon now and then see, well, what do they advocate? And if they advocate nuclear, it's a little more plausible. But if they don't, then they're and they advocate things like solar and wind, which have never pr produced uh, cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, certainly not on a large scale, then then you just know this is not a person with a pro-technology uh, philosophy. And they might tell you, swear up and down, that they love solar and wind technology and tell you that they visited whatever the new version of Solyndra is. Uh, but they have these core beliefs that completely undervalue all the benefits that man has created in terms of making his climate livable, making his environment better through fossil fuels. And they have this incredible pessimism with regard to the effects of that. And and if we want to take the individualism point again, they find it offensive that man would change the average temperature at all. Whereas it's just like chemicals we should look at, okay, is this bad or is it good? Because if you have a, a pro-human perspective, you don't have an assumption that, well, anything human beings do is, is bad. And you'd look at things like, well, we know for sure that CO2 leads to a lot more plant life. And we, historically, we know that generally people want it to be warmer on average than cooler on average, and people used to pray for more warming. So there's a lot of things concretely to consider, but the main thing is if you have this pro-reason, pro-individualism view, you'll have a very positive view of man's relationship to environment vis-a-vis -vis burning fossil fuels and an enormous suspicion of anyone who claims that we need to abandon fossil fuels on environmental grounds. Yeah, and there's a lot of topics within that global warming that get very technical. And I'm look f looking forward to hearing your debate with Bill McKibben. I'm sure you two are going to get into that a little bit. And uh, I think that's two months, al almost uh, two months to the day from when we're recording this. Now, uh, let's do one final topic here, which is interesting to me because it's when I started thinking about this the first time, what does this mean? It was so confusing to try to unravel it. And this is the concept of renewable energy. So we have all these ways in which we get energy and make things move and generate power. Um, what does it mean that one of them is renewable? Or what do people mean by that? And is there an actual concept there? Or what's going on with this? Yeah, so again, what does it mean? And then connect it to the ideas of, of reason and individualism. So it's very people it's it's very vaguely defined and you have these interrelated pseudo concepts of green energy clean energy renewable energy but usually it's it's referred to as you know energy that you know energy that will sort of sustainably regenerate uh indefinitely and there's a reason aspect of this and uh, 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 an individualism aspect. And I want to start with the individualism aspect, which goes to how do we evaluate energy technologies? And I mentioned this earlier with oil. It's what is the best, cheapest way you known using current technology and knowledge to create the energy that will benefit life? Anything less than that 
you're you're sentencing people to a worse life. So the question is, now where in that? So that's period. That I believe is a proper policy. So if that were solar panels, great. If that were if that's oil, great. But whatever it is, whatever is the best at any given time is the best. And of course, it's it's progressive. It 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 changes uh, for the better over time as knowledge as as people get more knowledge. Uh, about how to produce energy. So I'm in favor of what I'll call progressive energy. It's not sustainable in the sense of we use the same thing over and over. That is not the ideal. It's to get better and better and better. So it's progressive, um, but also life-focused, as in we want, we now want the best energy that we can get. Now, where on that does renewable kind of speaks to the longevity of the fuel of the ultimate fuel source and the idea is well how long can this fuel last and there's a lot of that's it's it's not it's it's an anti-reason notion because it's really treating the it's really treating the raw material that we get energy from or we might get energy from such as like the rays of the sun or the oil from the ground it's treating that as something that mother nature gives us and the question is well which is mother nature going to give us uh the longest but mother nature doesn't give us energy from anything we have to figure out how to use it and so right now it doesn't give us it doesn't give us energy in the modern sense from from the sun and the wind. So that's the sun as a nuclear fusion reaction. It's going to probably last about 5 billion more years. But at the moment, it's not particularly useful to us for energy production. So it's not really energy. Uh, so it's it, to call it renewable places priority on this idea of longevity, but really more this this idea of being natural and in tune with Mother Nature. It, it places more priority on that uh it, it it so it's 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 a moral idea it's that it's morally superior to use energy that quote renews than energy uh that does it and there's so many ways and we'll go into this in industrial encyclopedia which is incoherent for example mike lynch uh is a really brilliant oil guy who was on the second episode of the show he pointed out uh, on a blog post a while back that Oil is, quote, renewable in the sense of oil is made of dead plants that take a long time to uh, form oil. But if you use little, uh, if you use, let's say, a million barrels a year of oil, then oil, will, then you, it'll be renewable in the sense of you'll, you'll, you'll be, you could sustain that, quote, forever. So if you use oil as renewable until you use a lot of it, and that's also true, but that's then also true of, of, uh, that was true of wood in England. That's what motivated them to go to coal. That's true of whales. Whales are renewable, except we need more. So it's, the point is, it's hard to talk about because it is not a legitimate concept. It is no, it is no, at most you could say, well, do we use energy based on natural forces or not? But I don't even find that uh, coherent. And, and one last aspect of that is, if you could somehow harness the energy and matter, you know, so Einstein e equals mc squared just means that matter is is energy and has and just an incalculable amount or a very high calculable amount of energy. Then that you could outlast the sun with that. But it's but it's you know. So then is that renewable? Is the sun not renewable? It, it's just it's not a useful thing. So um, to to just encapsulate that 
positively. It's just all you need to know is we should use the best. We should use the best we uh, we, form of energy at any given time. That thanks to reason, that progresses. And that's great. That's it. So it's progressive energy. So renewable energy, if you want to file it, it's regressive energy. It's people telling us that for these various anti-technological reasons, we should use inferior forms of energy. You're saying inferior to what our understanding would allow us to do. Yeah, it's inferior as always. I mean, of a right. I mean, it's it's well, no, no, but inferior. I mean, is an inferior product. So someone saying, throw away your car you know, throw away your gasoline-powered car and or throw away your coal power plant and I'm going to replace it with a solar plant. That's an inferior product. You're saying we have the ability to do something better than that, which makes... Better than what? Better than the solar plant. More more effective, more productive than the solar plant. I mean, to say the least, the solar plant is... The solar plant is... I mean, to call it a plant is a a compliment it probably doesn't deserve. It's... it's, I mean, it's it's, it's a weird thing, right? Because it's not like replacing the horse and buggy it's like trying to have the horse and buggy replace the car for like you know a cross-country trip or something like that or you know for for a, a re, for a 60 mile commute from la to you know daily commute like it's it's not it's not a technology that has ever been uh successfully used for for the the standard, so it's is a very it's a it's it's that's why I say it's regressive. It's it's this idea because of this worship of oh we need to be quote renewable. It's actually saying no, shut down this factory and use something inferior. Now of course they say it'll work, but you can say anything will work. So uh, thank you, Alex. You've given many insightful thoughts on all of these topics, and we've run over an hour, I think. But I think it's important to hear more of your thoughts just for a minute about this industrial encyclopedia because these ideas are so detailed. It's the various forms of energy and how they interact and how they benefit us. Uh, it seems so valuable. Uh, and I think you're saying that nobody's really put all of the information together in a way that communicates that value. And uh, do you want to talk about how the industrial encyclopedia relates to everything we've been talking about today. What is it? Uh, yeah, so I, I mentioned it's it's really the education about our industrial civilization, how it works, why it's valuable, that we all should have gotten and none of us got. And the reason none of us got it is because we have a deeply anti-technology philosophy that's penetrated and, and distorted a lot of our society, a lot of our intellectuals, a lot of our policy, a lot of people's thinking. And so what this is, is this is recognizing that and sorting through all of that, uh, presenting things as they actually are. So it's not about being a propagandist for coal or oil. It's not that at all. All we do is we show you this is how oil actually works in relation to human life. This is how coal actually works. And we make sure that we're using concepts that are super clear. We don't just use uh, very vague or 
jumbled uh, concepts. And we're unapologetic about the fact that the whole thing is oriented toward human life. So if, if you don't like that, then then that's your, I guess that's your choice. Uh, it's a hypocritical choice if you're alive, if you remain alive. But in any case, that's a re, that's always the focus of the industrial encyclopedia. And by having that focus with every issue, it leads to just a new and, and I think much more clarifying way of thinking about all these issues. And so you look at recycling, it's just, okay, well, what exactly are we talking about? What's the way to approach it that benefits life? Pollution. What exactly are we talking about? What's the way to approach it that benefits uh, life? And I think that a, a lot of people, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on on this show, on Power Hour. And what's been most rewarding to me is that the people who listen a lot have a really, really good understanding of energy issues. I, I see them write on forums and just talk to me. And I'm, I'm really impressed by how much they absorb. And it, it really solidified in my mind the idea that if you give people the basic framework for understanding the issues plus plus the specifics everything just makes sense and it all flows and it and it's retained so what what you get with industrial encyclopedias on any issue you are interested in we're starting out with the three fossil fuels coal or hydrocarbons coal oil and natural gas but it'll expand way beyond that to different forms of energy and ultimately agriculture and uh you know chemicals and other stuff like that You'll have a go-to resource to answer, you know, any specific question you have with both the relevant principles and the relevant concrete details and stories. Uh, but then, more broadly, if you want it, it's got an organization to it and a comprehensiveness to it where you can give yourself or your children, which I know is important to many people, um, as much education as you want. So I'm I'm kind of downloading on this thing not only everything I know, but everything or a lot of what the world-class experts we've interviewed uh, know. And the result is, I think, that it'll in the future it'll just be way easier to understand these issues and it'll be way easier uh, to share a good understanding of these issues with your friends. It's going to be very shareable on Facebook. It'll be very easier. It'll be easier for you because you understand it so well uh, to communicate with other people. So given the success that we've had so far with these w with um understanding the right pro technology principles and explaining them uh explaining how they apply to every concrete issue the success that we've had so far in power and other places this is just to say this is that on steroids is an understatement so it's it's super exciting and uh yeah with that sales pitch in mind go to the industrialencyclopedia.com and check out check out you know check out in even better or not an even better but even uh ch check out the details of it check out the pitch there and uh, we're raising quite a bit of money for it uh, because it's it is a huge project we've already poured a bunch into it but now we need you to step in and i think you'll see uh, you will see over the next couple months certainly before the election if we can get enough funding this will be there you you're you'll be able to learn from it you'll be able to, if there's any chance of convincing that mother-in-law or cousin of yours of any of these issues, this is it. And I, yeah, all I can say is I wish I had had it when I got started here and I think you'll be glad to have it. Well, thank you, Alex. It sounds like an exciting project 
and thank you for inviting me on to host and interview you. It's been a pleasure. I always learn a lot. I hope uh, the listeners have as well. Okay, well, I will. I will take the privilege of closing. So, yeah, thanks to thanks to Chad for uh, guest hosting. He always asks uh, really good questions, and again, he's he's been very helpful with uh, CIP throughout its uh, brief but but lively life. And yeah, as always, if you want to contact me, questions, comments, hate mail, love mail, email alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back. Another exciting topic, a guest who isn't me. And until then, have a great week. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.